Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner, and in today's episode, we have a returning and recurring guest and friend of the program, John Mark McMillan. John Mark McMillan is a platinum-selling songwriter and artist from Charlotte, North Carolina, but more than that, he is a dear friend. He is a deep well, and I love, I love talking with John Mark, processing the way he's seeing the world. As a poet, dare I even say a mystic, I don't know if he'll be comfortable with that term, but I'm going to use it anyways. I, I love the way John Mark engages with the world, and he adds so much to my understanding of God, the world, and my own sense of vocation. John Mark has been processing recently the way Westerns, comic books, and other stories that center around violent eras have shaped his understanding of God, the world, and his own sense of vocation. And then when he was listening to my recent episode with Dr. Chris Green on the archetypal cowboy and hunter hero myths, he started seeing some even deeper connections and even raising some questions. He reached out and we started talking over the phone and decided, hey, let's process more of this together on Zoom. And if any of what we talk about together could be of help or some encouragement to others, then I'll just go ahead and share it on my podcast. So we ended up having a great 90 minute chat together. The full unedited video of that conversation is available on my Patreon page. But over the next two episodes, I'm releasing selected segments of that discussion that I think might be worth some of your attention. In today's episode, I talk with John Mark about how these Western stories and other American hero myths shaped his sense of vocation, some of it for good and yet other parts of it possibly distorting a healthy sense of calling. This is very much a conversation centered around processing our own journeys together and this will set the stage for part two, where we really wrestle with what to make of violent hero stories and the real life violent world we live in as followers of Jesus. I'm joined by my dear friend, John Mark McMillan. And this is fun because this was not really planned that far out in advance. <laughs> in fact, I think we decided to do this uh, three days ago <laughs> as, um, John Mark was listening in on our last episode with Dr. Chris Green, and we're in a group text, and the group text turned into a phone call. And the phone call, I was like, "Hang on, dude, you got to you got to save some of these thoughts because I actually think I'd love to capture them to share them, share them with others." So here we are, John Mark. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. Well, I'm here's where I want to start. Okay, yeah. so I want to start with a quote uh, from Chris Green's book all things beautiful. And then we'll just kind of see what, what emerges in you and um, where we want to take this. So here's from Chris. America's mythic heroes are not exactly Christ figures, although they live in the shadow of the cross. It comes near the truth to say they are disfigured Christs who both reflect and distort Christian convictions about who we are, what we're bound to do, and how we are to live with one another in the world. So I want I want to pick your brain, John Mark, because we were talking a little bit about when you were doing some reflection, listening to that. And even actually, I mean, you were telling me that even before you started listening to the episode, your mind has kind of been like in the Western, the archetypal cowboy, what Chris 
was calling the um, the hunter hero myth. You've been ruminating on those stories. So why don't you start from there and we can talk about these disfigured Christ. Yes, man. First of all, I love how complex that is. Mm-hmm. Um, both reflects and distorts. It's, I, I, that's not the exact quote, but no, but that's it. That, that's the same idea. And distorts. And it's very, very difficult to um, hold both of those things together, isn't it? But I was just thinking as I was listening to your conversation with um, with Chris um, about how subconsciously I've always thought about touring like it was the frontier, right? Like I really do. And I, I don't know that when I ever decided to do that, and it was always kind of silly, you know, but it was real. You know, it was always kind of silly, but I would collect and I still do collect cities and states and countries and venues in my brain. And when we play a show and we have a really good night, like I collect that. Like we we sort of like conquered that. Not that we conquered the people. We didn't make yeah. people submit, like, but we did something together. We conquered we conquered it together. I mean, it's it's very difficult to travel a long distance and to bring a group of people together and have these. Mm, I mean, you, transcendent is kind of the, a big word, but I mean, there's something really special that happens if people get a babysitter and pay money mm-hmm. and sometimes travel and then they buy a ticket and then they stand in line and then, the, you know, and then, then we stand touching a bunch of other people in a hot room. And something happens. People are willing to do that. And, you know, we meet people who come to eight, seven, eight, nine shows, you know, and they're like, this is my sixth one, my seventh one, my eighth one. And so there's something happening when all these people come together. And so something really interesting happens most of those nights. Mm. And and so, and, and it's not a thing that, I mean, we say we can't recreate it, but I guess we do every night somehow right. yeah. together, right? But we kind of collect those things, even the band. We just we think about our favorite ones. And in the back of my mind, I know that I've been to every American state minus three. And that's one of the most important things that I'm going to do in the next few years is to visit those three. Because for some reason, I don't know, why does it matter, right? A, a state is just a line, right? It's just an invisible, imaginary line that we create in order to organize people and laws and things like that. It just doesn't exist. But for some reason, um, I got to go to those other three states. Like, I have to. Mm-hmm. I have to. Before I die, I have to know that I've been. What are they? Got to be Hawaii. Hawaii, Alaska, and Maine. Maine? So, I know. It's crazy. It, it's funny. I, it's just I've always been up close to Maine and just yeah. never gone in. Yeah. So I want to do a tour where I play those three states, literally Maine, Alaska, <laughs> Hawaii. But the more you were thinking, the more you were, you guys were talking, the more I was like, oh my gosh, this narrative is so central to me that I haven't even realized that it's there. I'm a huge fan of um, uh, comic books and action movies. And this, this whole idea of the hunter hero, the revenge narrative, mm-hmm. the myth of redemptive violence is like baked so deep into those um, films and books and uh, to the point where I realized listening to you guys that like it's, it's in me, maybe in a little bit different way, but I have the frontier is tour 
Mm-hmm. And, and it, once again, this is another silly thing. It's silly, but it's so real. It's, the guitar is like the the revolver, right? Like totally. the guitar yeah. is the is the tool. Is mm-hmm. the and, and there's this um reverence of that instrument. Mm-hmm. Both the reverence and you know when when Jimi Hendrix destroys one on stage, the reason it's so like oh my god is because that instrument has so much reverence and it's like sacrifice. a sacrifice. Like you're watching a sacrifice happen when he exactly. burns his guitar. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's this really interesting parallel, you know, and I realized like I, li- I live into it even in my daily life. I'm like uh, to think about not touring um, is hard for me to think Man, about okay. doing it again. It's very difficult. I feel like I'd be giving up something of who I am, but it's not even playing the music necessarily. It's mm-hmm. not even making a living. It's not even a party. Like it's a lot of work. I think people think it's more fun than it is. It's fun. It's just fun in a different way than I think most people think it is. But I, but to not do it anymore f- feels like um, it'd be a little bit of a death for me to not think I'm going to get up one day. I'm going to go to some place I've never been before. I'm going to sing songs with people I've never met, and we're going to have this weird connection and intimacy and excitement. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to walk off. And I'm going to think about it, right? It'd, yeah. be, it'd be so hard for me to think I'm never going to do that again. And I've always wondered, what what is that? Yeah. Like, what does it matter, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I mean, you see that, you see that sort of like, I mean, that's a theme. Maybe even as far as you go as far as to say like a trope that you even see in Western movies about the old gunslinger, right? Yeah. Who's kind of getting to the end of his days. And I'm not saying you're there, but I'm talking about that tension when you start looking ahead going, what is there left to explore? Yeah. You know, what, what is there left to, and I think that, I think that is not, I mean, some people might step back and go, you know, John Mark, you're, you're making too much of this touring and music to call it that. But when you're in it, uh, here's what I'd say about that. I think the way those stories manifest in people's lives, obviously like the archetypal hero, we rarely ever attain to. Yeah. Even the complex hero. We never, you know, whatever stories we consume, we're not actually ever, rarely do people meet or exceed those exact scenarios and situations, you know? Yeah. And, and some of them are so absurd, they're not intended for you to step into and go, all right, I'm going to, uh, you know, travel through Mordor you know, or I'm not, I'm not going to leave Tatooine to hop on the Millennium Falcon. So you've got these, they're obviously ridiculous, but the thing that makes them work, and this gets maybe to like Joseph Campbell's hero myth is that there's kind of like a pattern in them that even as ridiculous, as outlandish as the scenarios are, you can still see if you maybe like maybe compress them down or you scale down the situations you can people see themselves Mm. in that and so the idea of the way you want to experience adventure you want to go out into the unknown the way you want to maybe bring some semblance of like order to a place that's unknown to you is in this expression of music and not just making a record, which is a very different experience than playing a show, 
and being in that communal experience in a brand new city in a brand new place. And even this idea, again, some people might laugh that you, you, you compare it to, you know, guitar to a, to, to a six shooter. But <laughs> if you've ever been around guitar players, you know, they talk about, they talk about the, they'll name their guitars. They'll mm-hmm. do these sorts of things where the guitar is for them. Like what you would see the archetypal cowboy treat and refer to his his sidearm with in that in those stories so it's it's not absurd i mean guitarists out there are probably going oh yeah i can totally relate and people that have never picked up the guitar are going that's a little that's a little extreme but that's funny to think of that as all right so well i actually think that the reason it seems so silly is because it's so cliche yeah so cliche because it actually is just so common yeah is people who get into music do it for very similar reasons. People who get into rock and roll, mm-hmm. playing the guitar. I, I remember I was, I remember being like bullied in school, in middle school, and I got into comic books and I would draw comic books. I remember drawing like I was getting back at the bullies. They weren't the bullies at my school. They were obviously extreme versions. These are like, you know, the bullies in the comics that I was drawing are like killing people. And then yeah. this hero comes in and he saves them by killing them and saving the people you know but i remember drawing those things and and this was kind of how i worked out like uh, you know the the chaos of being bullied at school and i realized at a point that the drawings didn't quite do it for me right but but for some reason a guitar seemed like that that was actually a continuation mm-hmm. right i could I, something about having the guitar and i've never really been able to understand why what why that the was attraction to it the yeah or how something else yeah like why did i why was the guitar like mm, you know like it'd be stupid to say why is a guitar all of a sudden make me more of a hero than the things i was drawing but it's another way to explore mm. right it brings chaos to order okay chaos, <laughs> it brings order to chaos in the sense that you like had this chaotic world where i feel like i'm out of control mm-hmm. but i can kind of control these strings and make a sound that's pleasant and people notice it mm-hmm. and it sort of became the the new outlet right was was the guitar but it's in my mind it's the progression is like um makes total sense as crazy as it seems maybe to the outside world but movie, yeah drawings I, and mm-hmm. comic books to music was like a for some reason just a perfect evolution to me yeah i mean there's probably some connection there with your genetic wiring your personality that you part written into your genetic code of attraction to the arts you know and there's a way in which i think maybe you were probably just processing through what is the best tool for you or method where you could bring about an invisible not yet seen world into the here and now, mm-hmm. you know, so like Dwight Hopkins, um, who I've talked about, and I even sat down for an interview a couple of years ago with, you know, he talked about um, culture, like the three domains of culture being spirit and spirit is the kind of like invisible values. I'm using some of my language now. I don't think he would use this language, but the invisible guiding stories, because stories are invisible in our heads until they actually take some sort of artistic form. And that domain in culture is the aesthetic. And then the other domain is labor. So it's kind of like what we do with the tools to repurpose the world 
in alignment with the spirit that we're following. And, but I want to think and play with this idea of like, why for you, it's that why for other people listening to this, why they might be attracted to, to, to other avenues for bringing the spirit that they're following into like visible ordered manifestation so the arts so for, for Hopkins, like the aesthetic domain is like the window to that other world. You know, it's the window into that world of invisible ideas, invisible values, what we can call spirits, you know, whether you're comfortable with that term, like on a metaphysical level, or whether you just want to think about it pure, purely psychological. And I don't think there's actually, we don't need to make a hard, hard difference between the two. So you, and I think everybody has this. For you, I I hear in like your story, John Mark, that there was a a gravitation towards, as we all do, how do we make the invisible visible, this world of our, not just our minds, but our minds, I think, I really do think our consciousness, we are interfacing with something beyond us as well. And so we are wrestling with and grappling with how do we bring that into some form that we can share. And so you're doing that with drawing, but music's really, really unique. And that music is this, it's like Jacob's ladder, you know, we're, we're like getting the messages in some sense from wherever they're coming from, you know, whether those are, those are messages and I've got no problem with this language. It's, we'll get a little charismatic here there. I think there are, I think there are transcendent powers beyond us that are not always for our good that people are actually in some form of like communion or conscious connection with, you know, so there's, there's dark arts, you know, (laughs) there there's dark magic in the world. And then there's, there's, there's light magic. You know, this is, this is stuff that maybe we've like brushed aside, but we know when we've experienced a piece of art, whether it's a film, music, even like a graphic novel where there's like, a darkness in that aesthetic. It feels like, I mean, this is going to sound super charismatic, but it feels like it's opening a door to some dark thing that enters into people's lives. And then there's art that opens us up to light, to logos, to truth. And so I'm, you know, I think when people look at these like Western stories or star Wars or any of these hero myths, there's always, not always, but most often, like these heroes have some sort of tool. And we're talking about the gun, which is a really difficult object to be talking about in in America right now. But you also have like Excalibur, you've got swords. I think the lightsaber and Jedi lore functions in that way. I mean, Batman's got all these little gadgets that are his like tools of order, but you got some that you go back to over and over his batarangs, his Batmobile, you know, I don't know where else you see those, those things, you know, Wolverine's got his claws. These are all about like, how do I, how do I, in some sense, like bring about the world that I'm trying to envision. And some of those tools are not good or at least maybe the way that they're used, we would say have degrees of goodness and degrees of, well, as Chris is talking about, they're they're like disfigured pictures of Christ. They're like orders of truth, goodness, and beauty. And some of them are less good 
than others and bringing about order. And you've got this attraction to the guitar because yeah. maybe for you, as you picked it up, you were bringing about, you you found maybe an ease in bringing about that kind of world, the, the, the spirit, that invisible domain that you were trying to bring into now. Maybe that just came more easily to you than art. And so that's a way you figured out your calling. Well, I think too, it's, it's like you have a couple of different components. One's the creative side, which I think you're talking about. The other is the um, the who you're going to be in the world part of it, mm-hmm. right? And and I think when I was in junior high, so I didn't go to middle school really. I went to a junior high, which is like seventh, seventh eighth, and eighth. ninth grade. Yeah, eighth and ninth grade, and in seventh grade it was probably the hardest year of my young life. Had some hard years when I grew up too. But in my young life, it's probably my hardest year. It felt very small, um, you know, and somewhat helpless. And so, like, a gun is a type of thing that makes you feel like you have some control over your, your environment, right? And I remember as a kid being like, you know, like imagining that I was Wolverine, where, you know, kids were stealing my lunch money at school or messing with me in the locker room. It's like... I had this thing that made me less helpless, yeah. you know, like if you're Wolverine. Um, and, uh, you know, and so I guess people would see that in a gun and I kind of found that in a guitar, like the guitar made me less helpless. I, it didn't save me from, you know, I, I, I ended up growing to be very tall. And so by the end of junior high, I didn't have so much of an issue, but for a couple of years, it was like, there was a lot of fear, but I think that um, a guitar made me feel significant. It was a thing I had that other people didn't have or not a lot of other people had that made me sort of special or gave me confidence. Right. But the other thing is there's um when you walk out on stage and sing, like I love karaoke because I love how scary it is. And there's a lot of people who will not do it, who won't do it because they're afraid. And apparently it's like public speaking is one of the top fears of human Mm -hmm. beings. Right. And so there is something to knowing like I can do this thing that like most people are afraid of walk out in front of other human beings and play songs that I wrote. And it doesn't make me better than anybody, but it gives me a confidence. Like I'm doing something that is actually very scary that I even get afraid of sometimes but that I've done it. it I don't know. It, it gives me a weird confidence. It makes me feel strong. Or it did. And it was changed over the years. Now I do it for the people. I think initially I did it for me. Mm. It made yeah. me feel big. And now I like really enjoy using that to make them feel big. Making mm. the people who come try and making them feel like they're connected to something bigger. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not just an ego thing. It's also a confidence thing. You know, um, but but there are the two sides of it. One is like you're saying, bringing the unseen into the scene, and then maybe this is the labor side of it, like then doing the work. Yeah, feeling like you matter and belong because of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think early on, it sort of the progression was. I think I got you know as a teenager because I was a teenager when I started playing, and you're not incredibly aware. I think I started playing guitar and music because i wanted to feel important or i wanted to matter right and then i think as in my early 20s i thought like you know we're in like revival culture we're gonna go like save the whole world through music right we're gonna go and release people from their 
you know, whatever. And we're going to introduce them to Jesus. And it, you know, you have this savior complex, yeah. right? You know, that is really more for me than for them. But in my mind, it was for them. We're the important people of God yeah. who are going to yeah. go and save everyone because we have the secret knowledge. And so that felt very purposeful because we're like out there. We thought we were. And that was very gunslinger. Like we're going into town and we're going to save all these people. And, you know, and then over time, I think that morphed into something different, you know, mm-hmm. It's that's like, funny. That's, that's, that sounds exactly like this. So there's a character in the Magnificent Seven. There's like one of the young gunslingers and you've got all these old vets, you know, like Yule Brenner and Steve McQueen's characters who are kind of like, you know, they've done their tours, so yeah, to speak, yeah. but they, they got one young gunslinger who rolls in and just thinks, and you can tell this is clearly attached to his ego, Yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> mm-hmm. we're going to change everything. We're going to. Yeah save the world through music right yeah yeah then over time it changes it changes into something else you know Mm -hmm. you realize you're just you're just you're a public servant you know and you're there to help people you know craft and assign meaning to their lives and if you're saving them you're really just saving them from the um you're not saving them from their lives you're saving them for their lives Right. You're giving them an opportunity to reflect on how important their life is. Mm. So you're not really there to change their life as much as you're there to hopefully remind them that their life matters. You know, do you feel like maybe you you start to realize how much of it is grace too? like and by grace, I mean that which is beyond your control, not not beyond your influence, but ultimately beyond your control. Yeah, definitely. I I flip flop on days between a, a level of determinism. Yeah, and I look at the world, you know, and sometimes determinism is helpful, um, mm-hmm. and then sometimes it's unhelpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? I think if you, um, if you live like a determinist, then you you won't apply yourself in any way. But if you think that you have a whole lot of control over. <laughs> much of anything you're also probably gonna um be a very um frustrated human being right mm-hmm. yeah there's like a there's like a old you know here's another archetype is you kind of have take like an obi-wan kenobi as we first meet him in a new hope um you take Ewell brenner's character in magnificent seven like these older seasoned heroes who again, they're still disfigured Christ. So we don't elevate them. They're, they're still below. If we're going to have like a, like a hierarchy of heroes, they're still below Christ. But, you know, I think maybe they're obviously lesser and greater degrees of, of heroism that we can look to and be like, yeah, this is something to attain to. But I, there's the old, there's the wise old master kind of archetype who is, it always stands out to me is not being anxious. Like that's one of the things that jumps out to me as if we're going to internalize any of these stories is you get the seasoned veteran, not cynical because there's certainly the old cynic, but the wise ones always come across as like non-anxious. Like Obi-Wan is so maybe to a fault mm-hmm. in, in a new hope, like yeah. he's not anxious at all. 
about what what's going on and he there's a recognition that there's there's only so much he can do and maybe that's from trial and error yeah. do you feel like as you look back on your like career arc so far do you feel like you've become when especially when you go on tour in these places you feel like you've become like less anxious yeah definitely cuz it i think it used to feel like we have to tonight is the only night we have and we've got to like make the most yeah and then as you get older you realize no it's it's about the work you do over a long period of time it's not about something that happens one night it's about something that happens every night Mm -hmm. i think the other thing is you realize too that i mean springsteen he 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 uh, was the keynote speaker at um some big um, conference connected to South by Southwest. And I remember one thing he said is you have to work like it's life or death. He's like, yeah. and then at the end of the day, you got to remind yourself that it's just rock and roll, you know? And so I think that it's like there, there's something to like putting in the work and then letting go. Yeah. Right. And there is also something that if you try too hard, it's like, if you don't do the work leading up to a tour, you're going to be in trouble because it's going to be, you know, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to, all you're going to think about all night is the songs. But the best part of a tour is when you're about four or five nights in and you're not thinking about the music anymore. The music is just a platform to have an experience with all these people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and so like, it's sort of the, the two parts are like doing the work. And then once you've done the work, then sort of, letting go and not caring so much mm -hmm. right and what happens is um when you don't care too much if you don't care enough you don't do a good job but if you care too much you overthink it and you you're not in the moment and you actually don't do as a do a great job totally. like mm, i don't know if i have a good analogy it's been a very very long time since like i dated but i remember being young and, and it's almost like ooh, when you're the older guy and you're married a few years and young guys are like obsessed with this girl, which we're going to be like, listen, it's OK to like be interested. But if you want this relationship too much, it's not going to work because you're going to be too into it. You need to take it slow and easy and needs to be natural. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's and like it's almost like if you care too much, you uh, get anxious and do stupid things totally. right totally. but as you get older it's the same with the tour with music or with anything it's like you want to be prepared but also you, when you get there you want to like also not care too much does that make sense totally i but think it's i think it's maybe attached to whether i think caring is the right word but i'm wondering maybe it's not about caring maybe yeah it's, no 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 i'm just thinking through this because i to as I reflect on this, and maybe the most applicable thing in my life is church, mm -hmm. preparing for a Sunday morning. Yeah. And when I was younger, like I was so exhausted after a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So I was so exhausted. And I really felt like it had to be a home run. Yeah. Every time. And then I started to realize that there was something like a hidden self-righteousness there. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. It, it was an exposing of, it wasn't, there was caring, 
but I realized the best way that I could care for someone else is to not think that I was the solution. <laughs> yeah, there you go. For them. And so maybe that's that realization of the, the, the tempering of our, we want to save the world. <laughs> like we still want that to happen. We want, that's, that's a good to aim for. We want to be, we want to have lives of meaning and significance in a story that matters. And so it's not that our stories matter less. I think it might be for me, a realization of, yeah, the story matters. I'm playing a role in it, but this is, this is co-op mode. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not single player. Yeah, 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 There really is. And this is not just Christian cliche. There is cooperation with the spirit that requires me to be in a role of, to drive less and to more like put up my sails and be attentive to which way the wind is blowing and to kind of learn how to ride, ride the waves a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that's where the fruitfulness comes. I'm the Paul apostle Paul said this, Paul, I water, you know, or, or I plant the seed of Paulus waters. It's God that gives the growth, God that gives the harvest. You know, we're just talking about like evangelism here. We're just saying like in everything in life. I mean, we were talking, I think one of the joint conversations we had with the other guys you offered me this real encouragement. Maybe this was even a couple of years ago because I've I've been prone to feel as if I have to create all the outcomes. Yeah, and I think you offered me some encouragement about man. Just look back on our lives at how much we made huge important decisions with so little information and so much immaturity. And God was so good. Like nobody knows what they're doing when they have kids. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. So I'm, I'm pointing all this to say caring is, to, yeah, there's a caring, but a caring attached to my like self-righteousness. So if I fail at this, the world's coming to a close. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's life is yeah. going to be ruined and it's all on my shoulders. And I think, I think that's probably something that needs to, you got to get, you get, you got to have that turned down. Yep. I think too, when I was young and I I didn't see it then, but looking back now, like one mistake would ruin the whole night, mm-hmm. right? Like one mistake and I would get weird and, and looking back, I was like, man, so one mistake that probably most people didn't notice would I'd, I'd obsess with it while I'm playing and I would probably project this really frustrated, terrible vibe. And when I thought back, like what was worse, that one little mistake or like the way I acted in front of people yeah, because of that one mistake when likely most people didn't even notice it. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the end of the day, like go see some of your favorites. Like occasionally they make little mistakes. It's not really about not making mistakes. It's about the moments that people remember. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what people remember the most is your overall disposition towards them. Right. Right. And yes. You know, like, and they don't even think about that stuff. They're like, are you there? What are you like? What am I feeling coming from you? That's it. Right. What is the feeling that I, that they feel based on who you are? And, um, and, and that matters because that opens them up to whatever you have to say. Mm-hmm. 
like people probably aren't willing to hear from you or experience something or consider what you're saying if they're subconsciously getting this um f u vibe right? Right. you know what i mean totally. and, and and that's what i didn't realize is i wasn't meaning to put that out but i was mad at myself because i made a mistake and my response to the mistake was i would externalize my frustration and project it on the audience yeah the which is uh, the worst idea in the, mm-hmm. in the universe right yeah and that that actually gets you out of the place so like uh, thomas aquinas argued that the highest virtue is something he called caritas and caritas is this other oriented love and i think what gets you most out of alignment with the will of God, the spirit, which most gets you out of, out of harmony with God is moving away from that other oriented virtue mm-hmm. of caritas and love for other. And I think it's, it's hard to sift through how much, cause I do, I, I totally get what you're saying. And nobody could have told me at the time, it, it, it almost is like, I, I don't know how I could have seen in the moment and maybe even how much right now in my own moment, I would say like, yes, I'm driven for this cause that has to do with other people, but there's still maybe like 70% of it is about me feeling good that I did something for other people, which means I've got to control the outcomes and, and that hmm that's the thing that i don't know if other than hindsight or time you can see i don't think you can actually and if you if you were if you and i were to have this conversation 20 years ago um we would both probably try to not we would we would we would shift the ego mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. to where the ego would become in like you know you, you ever meet those people like oh it's not about me it's about god I'm like, yeah, but it's about you because <laughs> you're making, you know what I mean? Like yeah. wearing the humble button type of thing. Like yeah. we're like, ah, just, you know? And so it's, I, I don't know that it's something you can learn without experience. Like I, I think it's the, there's no easy way to grow up. There's no trick. I think it's just something over time you have to learn yeah, and, and have to develop and cultivate. But well, where do you think you learn the other story from? Do you the think that? Yeah. So the other story that it's yeah. it's actually, and this this manifests itself in yeah. Christian culture in cultures outside of. So I I I'm torn because I think part of it is probably that inherent. What are you? Whether you want to call it, um, you know, being born into sin. Whether there's something about our evolutionary appetites for self preservation. Or I also think about, well, all right, getting back to the top of what we were discussing is like, all right, how how are the stories I'm consuming maybe feeding me a particular narrative about what heroism looks like in the world? And maybe I actually need to set my sights on better and higher heroes. I mean, which, how much do you think, I mean, there's probably some combination of all of those things, genetic, hardwiring. And the stories we consume, 
I, I have friends who have studied this kind of thing who believe that some of them believe it happens before you're one year old. Some people believe that it happens because when you're a child, I don't, I'm I'm not the authority on this at all. I just have mm-hmm. friends who are, and I've just picked up, look, this is just some things that I've heard. I think I've heard them say, so I don't want to pretend I'm any sort of expert, but it's something to think about. Um, is that uh, when you're a child, you 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 don't have the ability to to handle stress, especially before you can talk. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, especially when you're a young child, um, you know, you'll experience something, and 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 you'll instead of saying asking your parents why did this happen or how can I fix this, you don't have the ability to do any of that kind of internal, mm-hmm. you know, work. Um, so like, you know, if your parents walk out of the room, like you and I both know, like if someone walks out of the room, they're still there. Right. But to a child, yeah. a very young child, when someone walks out of the room, they may not be there anymore. They may mm-hmm. not actually exist anymore. We we take that for granted. You know, so I, I think that so I have friends who believe that there are these traumatic experiences that children go through and that they sort of <laughs> writes their hard drive. And so they're automatically set up to 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 um to run on certain stories. Oh man, I I got to <laughs> throw in something here real quick because that that's yeah. totally a gr- I'm glad you bring up that observation because I think about there's this guy um, psychologist Robert Keegan. I think he's probably more of a, a behavioral scientist, and he's the guy that I actually got the term meaning making from. You know, when I even called the podcast what I what I called it. And he's, um, he's like one of the leading, um, scientists in like adult development theory and how, how do we have these specific stages of childhood development into adulthood? And one of the things, and I, I wish I just had this chart handy to even just bring it up was you're exactly right. You know, when you play peekaboo with a kid and you cover the kid's eyes that he thinks the world disappears, Yeah, you know, there's something in, the development of human beings where we do start in this self mode, right? Like all I exist is me. And for Keegan, he talks about how um, many, you know, you take, you take criminals and one of the, one of the things, especially violent criminals struggle with is they literally can't, they're, they have very little consideration to no consideration for how, what they're doing actually impacts someone else. It's like, they just can't see it in their brain and all they have are the reward or punishment mechanism. So if I do this and I get in trouble, it's bad because it affects me negatively. And so for Keegan, like he, he, he observes that you see this a lot with criminals and it's actually like, it's, we should think of that sort of criminality as a developmental delay. Like there's a developmental disability there when it comes to learning socially that other people exist and their values and their dreams matter just as much mm-hmm. as yours do. And so typically like healthy adult formation is you actually, the differentiation of self, you learn what is yourself from what is your non-self. So then you start to see others in a group and yourself in a group, and then you see yourself in a group connected to other groups. Yep. So I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because that's probably an important part. And so yeah. I wonder how about those stories too, when you consume certain stories at certain ages that just reaffirm that 
yeah. how much that plays a role. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there is, um, you know, there's like uh, what my buddy, my my buddy Jim McNeish. You should have him on the podcast sometime. By the way, he's. I keep he's, seeing him uh, around. I, I should reach out to him. He's um he he he's the one I was talking about that that I, that I was recently talking to about the childhood development and the stories that happened before you know you even remember. But um, he also talks a lot about the Carl Jung shadow, you know, mm-hmm. type of stuff, and how you know your shadow is like the person that you don't want to be, like the the you know I remember being thirteen and being overweight and girls not liking me and people not picking me for the basketball team. And you remember like how you felt as that person. And there's a point when you make a decision, I'm never going to be that person again. Right. Right. And you, and you know, and so what does it mean to not be that person? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's another place where your story happens, you know, like, how can I not be that person? Well, I can, I can play the guitar. I can't shoot basketball. Well, you know, but I can do other things, you know, how can I not be that person? You know, that person is weak. That person is scared. That person feels like nobody cares. And so how, so I think subconsciously you try and invent a way to not be that person who feels weak or unsuccessful in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think early on, like a lot of the stuff, I, I didn't realize I was doing it, but like so much of what I got involved in was really, my attempts to not be that 13 year old in middle school. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, John Mark will be back next week to discuss and maybe in more particular details, some of the formative stories. We'll talk about Wolverine, IP man, Batman, uh, these, these violent heroes and what we make of them as followers of Jesus who just so happen to be men that find ourselves attracted to these kinds of stories. What is it about these stories that we find so attractive? Is there any redemptive value in them at all? What do we do in a world that seems to still need agents of wrath to preserve and protect order? So stay tuned next week. Really fun, I think really engaging conversation together we are processing quite a bit i don't think we're coming at this with here's the set answer and you should listen to us but we're thinking out loud and we hope you'll think with us and share your own thoughts and perspectives here's some of the ways you can do that first of all you can reach out on patreon you can message me there if you are a supporter on patreon if you're not please consider doing it that's the way this podcast stays ad free and um, I am able to do things like write over on my Substack page and not do any sort of subscription charge. So if we have a couple hundred people that believe in this enough to support it, then it stays free for everybody. So if you're in a place where you feel like you can do that, even for, let's say, two bucks a month, seven bucks a month, 15 bucks a month or more, then um, I encourage you, please consider doing that so that it can stay free for others that might not be able to afford giving anything at all. Uh, you can also reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. And uh, if you have questions, observations, I'd love to hear from you there. There's also the Deep Talks Discord server, and you can get plugged in there by becoming a patron at any support level. There is a full video, unedited video, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, available to all those who are supporting on Patreon. You could listen to all 90 plus minutes of this if you're finding that to be helpful. 
Um, there's a bunch of other bonus things over there as well. Uh, we do Q&A episodes, bonus, bonus episodes. There's also opportunities for live Q&A and discussion on Zoom. And so you can find out all about that by clicking, clicking the link in the description below. I want to give an extra special thanks to these patrons who have been uh, particularly generous in their support. Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, John Mark, Jesse, John Mark, yes, John Mark McMillan, also a supporter, <laughs> Josie, Jay, Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., and Selena. Selena, welcome. Thank you for your support as well. Well, once again, everyone, I do hope you'll reach out with your questions, observations, even your objections. I love hearing all of them. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.